Hi, my name is Aisha Small. Thanks for downloading this episode of the Youth in Education podcast, where I interview interesting guests to explore developments in education, research and policy that affect young people, primarily in the UK. This podcast is brought to you by the Youth Think and Action Tank, LKM Co. Hello, Sam Bars here, and welcome to this edition of the LKM Co Youth in Education podcast. What is that feeling you get when you walk into a school for the first time? If you've ever pondered that question too, then you're in the right place. In this edition of the podcast, I speak to Aisha Small about our recent report for the Department for Education, School Cultures and Practices that Support the Attainment of Disadvantaged Pupils. Aisha and I chat about what we mean by school culture and, crucially, how we can measure it more specifically. We talk about some of our findings in detail and how when it comes to the ways in which a school culture supports the attainment of disadvantaged pupils, the devil really is in the detail. Hope you enjoy. Thanks for listening. LKM co-believes society should ensure all children and young people receive the support they need to make a fulfilling transition to adulthood. Find us at lkmco.org. Can we listen to it now? Good morning, Dr. Sambars. Morning, Aisha. How are you? We haven't, we've, I mean, we've spoken, but we haven't been podcasting for a while. No, there's been a bit of a break, hasn't there? A yeah, bit of a I've hiatus. Missed I've missed my work, <laughs> my work and podcasting husband. So. <laughs> and the little podcasting room that was boiling in the summer is now freezing. Now freezing cold. It's so cold. <laughs> All right, Sam, so what have you, tell me, what's been, what's been going on with you? What have you been up to? Uh... As a team, we've been doing lots of interesting organisational thinking recently. Yeah. Uh, so that's been that's been um, on my mind, on all of our minds. That's been really nice to. It's been a good summer of that sort of that sort of stuff. But we've also finally tied up a big report that we were working on since the autumn term twenty sixteen, mm-hmm. which does seem a long time ago now. Um, a big report for the Department for Education, which was finally published back in September. Yes, um, we were talking about how. Uh, pretty much everyone on the team has had a part in this report because we, all of us had to do either a case study or some coding. Yeah. Much coding. <laughs> Much coding. It was one of those kind of all hands needed on deck at times sort of reports. Oh my God. Um, yes. Yeah. Um, I just realised that I used the word coding uh, because we know what we're talking about, but could you explain to any listeners who don't quite know what we're talking about what we mean by coding, please? Yeah, of course. And this is a good a good report to give as an example, actually. So this is a report that we were commissioned to write by the, the DfE on school cultures and practices that support the attainment of disadvantaged pupils. So it's out now. It's available to read. That's it. Yep, it's out now in all good bookshops um, <laughs> and the DfE website. And it was a qualitative study of 23 primary and secondary schools. And essentially, we wanted to get under the hood of school culture and what we mean when we talk about a school's culture and what that might actually look like, how you can measure it, how you can detect it. So it was kind of a comparative qualitative study and in terms of coding what that meant is that we gathered a really large amount of qualitative data. So we, in total, we, um, we interviewed uh, lots of senior leaders, governors, teachers, held focus groups with parents and pupils, pupils, wrote diaries for us over the course of a couple of days and we carried out two days of observations in all of these 23 schools. So that generated a a huge amount of data, I think in total about 350 bits of of data. Um, And we then 
we use coding, which is basically tagging all of that data. So whether it's images in the people's diary mm. um, or something that someone has said in an interview or focus group transcript. And we've tagged it to arrange it and order it in a way that makes it amenable to analysis. So it's not just a big haze of data, particularly in an area like this when you're talking about school culture, which can be quite vague and quite broad. We try to pin it to specific themes. Uh, for instance, are people talking about the way in which a school manages behaviour and attendance or the way in which a school manages data or a way in which a school reaches out to and involves and engages parents. So we use those kind of high-level themes when we were analysing all of this data on what schools, cultures and practices look like to, to make it easier to analyse, to chunk it down a bit. And so there's lots of different ways you can do coding, but when people talk about coding and qualitative analysis, it's really just a process of identifying bits of text or image or, or sound or moving image and applying one or more categories to it. And what's the point of it? So the point of it really is to arrange things in a way that's, that's easy to... It's, it's easier to then go back to your whole data set once everything is coded up and say, at first, for instance, you might say, OK, give me everything with, that we tagged that related in some way to behaviour and attendance. And then you go through everything that you've got and you'll look so this is kind of an exploratory way of doing it you might not have existing categories in your head at the start about aspects of behavior and attendance that might come out in your data you might just want to know what's in there you know given this is about behavior and attendance across all of the schools we went into what's in there and then you can then tag it with additional additional codes as you go through depending on what's coming out so for instance is it about behavior or is it about attendance is it about um, the way in which behaviour and attendance is set by the school leadership or is it about specific techniques that are used? And you can, again, you can tag and tag and it arranges your data in a way which makes it easy to analyse. And one way in which it makes it easy to analyse that we deployed here was to compare. So you might code all the data relating to behaviour and attendance for all of the higher performing schools and the lower performing schools in your sample. In this study, we were talking about high-performing schools in terms of schools where disadvantaged pupils, so pupils eligible for free school meals, um, did well in absolute terms. And also there was a really small gap between those pupils and their peers who weren't on free school meals. So we, we looked at higher-performing schools and lower-performing schools where there were bigger gaps and disadvantaged pupils didn't do so well in absolute terms. And we were able to compare, using everything that we tagged, whether, for instance the sort of stuff that was coming out in terms of what they did in terms of behaviour and attendance looked different between those, that set of high-performing schools and that set of lower-performing schools. And I, one thing that we were able to do, which I think was testament to gathering this richness of data, is that we did a bit of numerical kind of comparison. So we looked, for instance, to see whether uh, particular behaviour and attendance techniques were, appeared to be more, more widespread in high-performing schools as opposed to low-performing schools. So we did a bit of that to provide some steer, but we only used a really small sample of schools. So I think what was more powerful, when we'd coded everything, got it arranged, and were able to compare what came out between the two sets of schools, was the nuance and the detail. So things like, was the language that school leaders used to justify particular techniques subtly different between those two sets of schools? And by coding things and arranging the data, it just makes it so much easier. That stuff kind of jumps out at you. You can, you can compare side by side a load of quotes, for instance, from senior leaders relating to exactly the same specific theme and see if the language they're using is, is subtly different. Because sometimes that's what it 
and that's what we one of the main findings in the report is that often schools broadly do a lot of the same stuff, but the way it's justified or spoken about is is different sometimes. It's interesting. So over the weekend, I was listening to a podcast uh, with this guy called I can't remember his name, but he was a uh, I think he was a restaurateur, um, and so he'd had a really successful um, restaurant in, say, New York, for mm. example. Um, but he didn't want to scale it, so um, it had been successful. And then suddenly, someone suggested, "Why don't you open another one?" And he was talking about how the second one was not very successful, and they couldn't work out why because mm. they had the same kind of approach and so on and so forth. And then they had a diner who used to go to the other one and explained that there was something missing from this other restaurant. And in essence, it was the culture. And he described culture as being how a place makes you feel, which mm. I thought was an interesting description because it's not that tangible. But, you know, what you were saying about the language, you know, um, two sets of school leaders might implement the same thing. So you might be implementing a change to do literacy or some kind of work scrutiny thing or whatever it is and in one school it could be received really really well and another not and maybe because of the way it's sold to staff or mm. the language used or whatever like I actually just talking now I when like a long a while ago when I was ahead of maths I remember we basically created key stage 14 and a key stage 3 team um, for lots of different reasons, but generally speaking, it was because there was a problem with um, there were some people who were better suited to t- teaching key stage four. Okay. Um, and it hadn't been done before, but that's what I thought was necessary to do at the time. And my team took it pretty well; like it was hardly any trouble at all. And you know, we explained why it was, and everyone felt really valued, blah blah blah. Um, and then I remember the English department at the same time at the same school also did the same thing, mm. and it was the source of a lot of stress and infighting in that department. Okay. And it was amazing because it was the same thing. Mm. Um, but the way that we'd communicated it or the way that they'd received it had been very, very different. Mm. Um, and that, I guess that's kind of what culture is about. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and an example that's really similar to that that we picked up in our report is that uh, all of the schools we went to made use of data. They gathered, gathered pupil-level data. They were fully aware of their own kind of headline, headline data. But when we spoke in more detail to individual teachers and school leaders, in general, in lower-performing schools, they were less likely to talk about data as something that could drive um, positive changes for disadvantaged people, so to help them to make changes to teaching and learning, for instance. It was generally just, they spoke about it more in terms of its accountability measure. It's an important accountability measure, so we gather gather the data so that we can report. Whereas in high-performing schools, they tended to be more ready to talk about it in terms of something that could directly benefit disadvantaged pupils. And that's a really important distinction. So if you, if you looked at what they were doing, if you kind of observed, exactly you same. probably wouldn't see any difference. Um, and I would imagine that that can easily trickle into things like staff morale and people's attachment to a particular practice or behaviour because it's, it's inherently more motivating to be doing it because you think it's actually going to benefit pupils rather than just being an accountability measure. Mm. Um, so yeah, just to pick up on your point, we, we found lots of those sorts of examples that are, are fascinating. You know, something looks to be exactly the same, but it's in terms of its delivery or people's commitment to it, there's a, there can be a really important difference sometimes. I think another there are so many findings in this report. It's quite a lengthy report. Um, yeah, I've got I've got the summary version, and the summary version yeah. is like twenty pages, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the summary version is twenty pages, um, and the uh, the long version is um, is, is much more. longer. I think about seven times. 
like that sort of length. But it contains all the fascinating detail and yeah. lots of wonderful pictures from the students' diaries, which are the highlight for me, probably. Um, but an, an important thing we identify across the piece is this idea of consistency. Um, so time and time again in lower performing schools, we found that there might be a similar ethos at, at the top when you speak to senior leaders um, and, and many staff and teachers um, or a particular approach or a particular belief in what they were doing. Um, a behaviour management system, so in terms of practices, were, were a good example as well. Often you would find that in some classrooms things were done the same way, but if you, for instance, went into the dinner hall or the playground, those systems weren't being used or staff weren't aware. So non-teaching staff, for instance, weren't aware that those systems were being used or that they were important. Mm -hmm. And that instantly generated inconsistency in people's experience of what they were expected to, um, to be doing in terms of behaviour. And that element of consistency was, was really important. We, in general, we found in high-performing schools that whether it was a practice um, that you found everywhere in the school or a particular culture, a particular vision or attitude, it was just more consistently present across the whole school and beyond the school gates. You know, in some, some schools we found parents who didn't just kind of know what the school's motto was because they'd learnt it by rote, but they, they got it and they believed it and they understood how they could contribute to it, which I was amazed by, but we found it in a number of high-performing schools, parents saying, well, you know, we know the school believes this or their approach to learning is this, and so we try to do this at home and we get it, we think it works. We're trying to do our bit as well. Um, so, yeah, consistency was another key theme, like a high-level theme that came out. That's really important. Okay, so the report, I'm not sure if we actually said what it's called, uh, School Cultures and Practices Supporting the Attainment of Disadvantaged Pupils. And as you said, it's a qualitative comparison um, of London and non-London schools mm. uh, because often you know, people say that London is a special case and mm. it's a very particular demographic, doesn't exist elsewhere in the country, etc. Et so mm. it was important that we were looking at schools elsewhere as well. Mm. Um, and there were 11 themes, as you said. So um, number one, so aspirations and expectations. Number two, positivity, energy and purpose. Mm. Collaboration and competitions. Number three, data and evidence, which you've alluded to a little. Um, behaviour and attendance, which you spoke about, staffing, leadership, targeting resources, the partnerships and act activities, mm. learning environment, and a little bit of what you just alluded to in terms of beyond the school plates of parental engagement. Yeah. I'm going to pick up on leadership because, you know, we were talking about culture and in many ways a culture, you know, is defined by the school leadership, I would suggest. Mm. Um, uh, but equally speaking, Sometimes there are subcultures within schools uh, that can undermine what leadership are doing. Uh, and I think in successful places, they gel, as you said, there's consistency between what the leadership is trying to do and what the overall school believes as well. Mm. So what were your most interesting findings, uh, in your view, kind of related to leadership? Mm. And leadership is one of the most interesting themes of that set of 11 that we use to try and structure analysis. Um, and just as an aside, we... We got that set of themes from an extensive literature review and from going back to looking at a set of expert interviews that we conducted in 2014 as part of a, a report we wrote on the London Effect um, back in that year. So these themes were kind of, uh, they were drawn from that um, kind of expert opinion and from a study of the existing literature. But leadership's interesting because it kind of taps into all of the others. In high-performing schools, leadership were really instrumental in things like approaches to um, continuing professional development, CPD, 
and the way in which the school hired and used um, newly qualified teachers. Mm -hmm. So that comes into staffing, but in my mind, really, it was the way in which though the way in which staffing was was driven by a particular culture that came from the school's leadership. How did that work in terms of, say, could you mm. give a contrast between high-performing schools and... <laughs> I'm about to ask this question, I'm wondering, um, have you read Anna Karenina? You know, I the, haven't. All right, so the very beginning of it goes something like... Um, this is going quite highbrow now, Aisha. No, no, wait, wait. <laughs> so there's a bit... It goes... This is paraphrasing it terribly, yeah? But something like... Um, uh, all happy families are similar, but all unhappy families are unhappy in their own way, basically. So what I was going to ask you was, um, were you able to compare and contrast between the high-performing schools and the lower-performing schools? And I was wondering if like, maybe all the high-performing schools had loads of similarities, but the poorly-performing schools had so many different things it was impossible to say. Mm. That's what I was wondering. That's interesting. I, th I don't think so. I mean, one of, the, one of the caveats that we put in place when we were talking about the findings from the lower-performing set of schools were contextual factors. So particularly outside London, we did acknowledge that funding is something that lots of the, was a concern for lots of those schools and recruitment and, and retention in kind of less densely populated areas that we went to. Mm -hmm. And so that was, if anything, a kind of a factor that united that, that set of um, seemingly lower-performing schools. That's a really interesting question, though, in terms of the... Was there more or less variation in, in those two sets of schools, you know, where... Well, higher-performing schools are a, to a tighter-knit set of schools than the lower-performing schools. My sense is that they weren't, but I'm going to keep mulling over that one because that's quite an interesting... Random question. That's a great quote as well. <laughs> Even if it is paraphrased, that's, that's really I'll nice. I'll it out It's really neatly summarised something that you often have to think about when you're doing comparative analysis. Like, you know, you, get, you can get hung up on the variation between... or the difference between two groups without thinking about the internal variation within those two groups. And it's at, at the heart of a lot of criticism of people premium at the moment is this growing tide of feeling that actually talking about a gap you know, between the mean of one group and the other doesn't actually think about the variation within those groups. And often a school has, there's far more variation in the attainment and the learning needs of its people premium kids and its non-people premium kids than there is between those two Groups as a whole. Anyway, that's just an aside, but it's a really important point. So I'm not. I'm not sure. I don't think there was more, more variation. I'll dig um, up the quote later. <laughs> yeah, no, I'd like to see it. Okay, so um, collaboration and competition versus partnerships and activities. I remember this is one where I kept getting confused as to how to code something, and sometimes I do it as both. Okay. Can you um, explain <coughs> what the difference is? So uh, and and how we interpreted it. So difference between collaboration and competition and partnerships and activities. Mm. If you can explain that yeah I'll try this is taking me back um, with those two themes so in terms of collaboration and competition so the set of stuff that we called collaboration and competition we were really trying to tap into essentially schools as part of uh, a market of schools or a quasi market of schools mm. so to what extent the schools see themselves as working with other schools to achieve their aims and is that in their local they... area or their um, trust or what in, in whatever way. Okay. So we, we asked them questions about, for instance, when we were interviewing teachers and senior leaders, we spoke to them about ways in which they worked with other schools in their local area. So if they were part of a map, then other schools in the map would be an obvious example. But we spoke to many schools that, hadn't, that weren't in maps or hadn't academised yet. Um, so we were interested to see how they worked with other schools or the extent to which they 
um, they saw them as competitors or were aware that things like lead tables automatically set them up as, as competitors in some ways. Partnerships and activities as a theme was designed to identify ways in which schools might work with local employers, for instance, in creating opportunities for disadvantaged peoples, and the activities they, they lay on, so you know, most prominently extracurricular activities um, around um, the core school day. So that's what those two themes were set out to, to identify. And I was just thinking, so my natural bias, having worked in secondary schools, is I tend to you know, automatically assume secondary school things, but I think it's important that we um, outline that this report uh, and this research covers primary schools and secondary schools. Yeah. Um, and I was wondering, did you... I know this wasn't necessarily the focus of the research because it was mostly, you know, London schools, non-London schools and high-performing, non-high-performing, but did you notice... Were there any differences between how high-performing secondaries operated in any of these strands and how high-performing primary schools operated? There were some differences in particular areas. So, for instance, high-performing primary schools specifically seem to do something quite different and quite special around aspirations. Mm. So one of the things we identified in the report, um, and it really interested me because a lot of my earlier research is on young people's aspirations and expectations, but in high-performing primary schools, we found that pretty much across the board, they would use people's aspirations, whatever they were. And often in primary schools, they can be quite idealistic things, yeah. like being a footballer or an astronaut, yeah. um, as hooks to get them thinking about uh, other opportunities they might have, or, or to consider that opportunity at a greater length. And in other schools, in, in other primary schools, we found that sometimes that could, um, that was something of a worry. So, you know, schools saw it as their duty sometimes to... As in the, the children had too outlandish ones or they didn't have any at all yeah and that that the work then that needed to be done there was to kind of bring people's back down to earth to some extent no they're only little why not enjoy life yeah you're a rocket scientist and often (laughs) it was done in a really supportive way yeah but there was a sense in which in in low performing primary schools um their job was to steer to steer disadvantaged pupils towards often really high aspirations, but ones that were like eminently attainable. Whereas in, in high-performing primaries, they, they did really inventive things, like they would bring one primary school I went to, um, brought in a footballer from a local club, um, and all the kids were going wild because of they love to see a you know, <laughs> Premier League footballer standing up at the front of the hall. Um, and he spoke a bit about football, but then spoke about his love for... Um, writing poetry mm. and how um, he probably did it in a far more subtle way than this but how that required him to you know work hard and you know studying English formally and this kind of thing supporting that other hobby that he has so doing interesting things like that kind of taking the hook of wanting to be a footballer and saying like, okay that's great it is really exciting isn't it some footballers have other things that they do as well and that you might be interested in. So, Did you know that footballers need to write as well? Yeah, children? they can write too. And some will write poetry. Um, I, haven't, I can't remember who it was. I haven't read any of his poetry either. Um, but it was... Frank so, Lampard has a series of children's books. Did you know this? He does. Like, yeah. My son loves them. I was just like, he probably doesn't write them. But you know, if he does... He'll be a ghostwriter. <laughs> Brilliant. I'll pop down the library on Wednesday. Sorry, right, Frank but... Lampard, if you actually do write your children's books yourself. My apologies. Yeah, we shouldn't have seen that. That's a bit I know. Harsh. Um, it's the most random thing ever. 
So there, there were specific examples like that, and I think you would almost expect to maybe see more differentiation or more variation in the aspirations work at primary schools because you you tend to get more variation in people's aspirations when they're younger um, before they get beaten down by all kinds of negative forces around them. Um, there were a range of differences between, in a way, you know, we, we were looking at high-performing schools, low-performing schools, we were also constantly looking at that distinction between primary and secondary, and they, there were some things that were specific to phase, um, and we've outlined those in the report. So, what, um, so aside from um, aspirations, was there anything else that was specific to phase? Transitions are really crucial, and that, as a theme, came up quite a lot. It's not something we explored in its own right as a theme, but it came up a lot when we were talking to high-performing primary schools. Um, in terms of that theme of collaboration and competition I was talking about, a way in which they said it was important for them to work with other schools was easing that transition from primary to secondary. And high-performing primaries had this real fear, this real worry that all the hard work they'd done in terms of instilling a particular culture and ethos could be lost if, if that transition to secondary wasn't, wasn't managed well. Mm. Um, so again, that's something quite phase-specific. We didn't tend to see it from the other side so much. The high-performing secondaries, at least, didn't talk about managing that transition or, or, or working with other local primaries to manage that transition in the same way that high-performing primaries did. Maybe it's that high-performing primaries see it as their role or responsibility to do that work. I don't know. That's probably jumping the gun. That's kind of sad, isn't it, actually? I'm thinking. Hmm. In some ways. Yeah, potentially. Um, I mean... It isn't, it isn't. The, the, the primaries we spoke to that were doing that work had clearly um, made links with secondaries who were willing to do that work. And for instance, secondaries seem to be a great source of support in terms of kind of hiring, hiring big rooms or giving primary people's taster days in the science lab because primary schools don't have the same kind of equipment and labs and stuff, but the local secondary might. So there were clearly secondaries that were willing to be part of that process, but they tended to it felt like it tended to be initiated by, by primaries and yeah. specifically kind of high-performing primaries seemed to do it, do it more. Mm. That was interesting because you, you, it, sometimes you have these collaborative relationships that actually tend to get initiated by one side rather than, than the other. I don't know. It would be interesting to look at that as a research question more widely, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, because it's something that comes up often, the transition, like, you know, when you're, mm. uh, especially when you're looking at um, you know, English and maths, for example... Uh, something we're working on at the moment and uh, one of our experts mentions the fact that there's some really great stuff going on in primary and then there's you know that well-known stagnation that happens in year seven mm. for some some high-performing pupils not undone but they don't make that much progress right. and then suddenly you know um, that's a problem mm. so I'm wondering if I'm a school leader or I'm somebody who works in the school. Um, my school is currently not attaining what I'd like, but I wanted to learn some lessons from badass, high-performing schools. Uh, that's our next report, by the way. Badass, high-performing high schools. schools. <laughs> so, yeah, so from, um, from high-attaining schools, what would you... Obviously, it's more nuanced than this, but what would the pointers be that you, you've picked up from high-performing schools that you think that... Um, schools that aren't quite there yet could try and change what should they be looking to do. Mm. So this is a bit of a letdown, but the strength of this report for me, I think, and the way in which I think I want people to... You're going to give me a research answer, aren't you? Go on. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> I wouldn't dream of giving you a research hand, answer. <laughs> on the other hand. <laughs> uh, 
that's an awful characterisation. <laughs> We're a fascinating bunch, actually. And we do, we occasionally have opinions. You know I love you, really. No, no, it's fine. It's, it's going to be one of those awful balanced answers. But really, the way, the way I'd want people to approach the report is an attempt to really try and get under the hood of what we mean when we talk about culture. So to go into 23 primaries and secondaries, spend some really good amounts of time in those schools, and to now have a clearer idea of some of the concrete things you can look for, to, to the concrete practices you, you can identify that might indicate what kind of culture is present in a school and the language you can use to describe that. We don't... So we have identified cultures and practices that did seem to be different, in high-performing schools, so we certainly go that far. What we haven't done is to be able to make any causal claims that that, that makes the difference uh, and how that makes the difference for disadvantaged pupils in those schools. All we know is that the culture and practice looks different and we know that the, the attainment data suggests that those schools do get different results for disadvantaged pupils. But I would definitely... I think it's like the high-level themes about things like consistency... Um, so in high-performance schools, they tended to do things more consistently, like I was saying earlier, in terms of uh, behaviour management, but just in terms of a school's broader culture. Uh, for instance, its aspirations for how it expects its disadvantaged pupils to do. Um, in high-performance schools, we would see that they, they tended to talk about their uh, disadvantaged pupils attaining in line with the national average for all pupils or above it, not just in terms of the national average for disadvantaged people. So really subtle differences like that, but all staff knew that that's what the aim was. And we found more variation in low-performing schools. So I would, I would suggest that school leaders who are reading this report might want to think about n- not necessarily the specific elements of their culture and practice they might want to go home and try and change, but how consistent is what they're already doing. And it sounds like a bland point, but we just saw it time and time again, and it came across in such a fascinating variety of ways in relation to all of the things that it it kept coming home to that that question of consistency. Um, And that actually, when things are inconsistent, it can undermine or completely wipe out the potential benefit of actually probably the right culture or the right practice, but if it's not done consistently, then it's... I also, like, so to that, as a summary thing, I think what I'm hearing you say is that it's not as simple as taking something off the shelf and doing this 10 set of practices in your school become amazing. No. You know, that's, that's quite simplistic and, and mm. it's not um, what we'd be advocating. Mm. But mainly, whatever you're currently doing, um, first of all, is everyone currently doing it? You know, you, you might see it when you're walking into classrooms, but of course you're going to see it if you're the head teacher because only an idiot would not do what they're supposed to be doing when you're there, um, <laughs> or someone not very competent at all. Um, but does it actually happen when you're not there? Mm. You know, if you were to ask any student in your school, would they be saying that teacher X is doing it, and that is happening in the canteen, and that is happening in break time, and that is happening on the way to school, or mm. you know, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, so how consistent is it? But also. Um, you know, does your culture enable people to be able to um, create and deliver what you believe in the school? Um, or again, does it have to be only when you're around or only when leaders are around? That mm. sounds a bit like what you're saying. Mm. I think um, just how how much does what you think is the school culture actually permeate all um, aspects of your school? Mm. and all people within your school mm. and that would be a good starting point to know mm. definitely and you know in concrete terms how do you do that we 
a specific example is that in a number of high-performing schools, we found that head teachers still had often quite hefty um, kind of timetable teaching responsibilities. But again, it, it comes down to the nuance. In low-performing schools, we found that there were plenty of heads that still taught as well. But they tended to do so for different reasons. In, in low-performing schools, it was often to kind of provide cover or fill gaps. In high-performing schools, it's because the heads knew that they could play an instrumental role through doing that teaching and being kind of plugged directly into um, a particular year or a particular um, subject area, kind of modelling the kind of teaching that they wanted to see in their school um, and helping individual members of staff kind of mentoring and coaching to particularly new members of staff to improve their teaching. And they saw it as a kind of a positive, a positive way of being able to do that. Mm. So sometimes it involves being really really hands-on involved um, in day-to-day school life. In other ways, it's really quite mysterious, and I think we've one of the kind of future areas of research that we'd want to be involved in is exactly how you establish a culture, like you said, and make sure that it happens even when you're, when fa- you're not I'm there. I'm fascinated by organisational culture. Right. Um, just because it's such a hard thing to do. Mm. And, uh, you know, like I, I look at it in schools but also kind of in businesses and so on and so forth I just find it it's fascinating because it's really about relationships mm. and how does that happen um, and you know in, in some ways uh, businesses talk a lot about like there's stuff about startup cultures and how you create something you know we work somewhere where there's a very distinct culture mm. but I've always wondered how you know is it possible to truly change a culture and I think that's something that is difficult for many schools like when I think about the schools that are maybe famous or the ones that are in the news and educational circles, they're often new schools Mm. that are able to create a culture from scratch and hire exactly who they want. Many schools don't have that luxury. Mm. So, you know, how does an existing school have someone come in and, if necessary, change the culture so that it can improve? Like, I still don't know if I've seen a satisfactory answer for that. Mm. Um, It's like something I'm fascinated by. Yeah, and we'd be the first to say that if you're a school in an area that's going to lose the most from the new funding formula or where recruitment is particularly difficult or where your school's reputation is particularly bad because of what you know what might have come before then those aren't those are not insignificant hurdles to be crossing when you're trying to put in place a new school culture Um, and we totally acknowledge that in the report because it is easy to talk about these things in in terms that make it sound quite easy and we've been quite careful I think to to not do that because it's it's such a fine art and you're often trying to make these minuscule tweaks and adjustments that will actually have really profound changes on your organisational culture in the face of really strong headwinds. Um, it's, it's no easy no easy task at all. Um, Sam, thank you. The time has flown by. It has. We'll disappear off to our meeting now. I can hear the teams arrive. There's lots of And I can hear the cackling in the background. It's terrible. It's terribly unprofessional, isn't we'll it? We'll leave it in the edit. <laughs> 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 I dare they have fun. Hey people, I love making this podcast. If you enjoy listening to it as much as we enjoy making it, there's a few things that you can do. One, subscribe. Press the subscribe button on iTunes or wherever you listen to it. Two, share. Share this episode with somebody who you know will find it interesting or is affected by the specific issues covered. Three, review. Write a review or leave a comment. Also feel free to contact us via the links on the show notes. Thanks a lot. Bye.